Well, welcome to another episode of Tree Lady Talks from an exceptionally wet part of North West Essex, uh, which I can say is not the situation uh, which will be found in the uh, area that we are focusing the podcast on today, will it? No, I mean, I've got absolutely drenched this morning out on site, but we should be grateful because we're hearing from Tree Aid, a brilliant charity helping people in the dry lands of Africa. I'll get behind the kit. We've got a trailer coming up which explains a lot about what they do. We're interviewing some very important movers and shakers uh, in the world of tree aid, and one of which is Shireen Chambers, MBE. Yes, Shireen is a chair of the trustees of tree aid. Georges Bazongo. He's a director of operations based in Bakuno Faso. And then we're talking to two intrepid fundraisers. And when I say intrepid, I'm not just talking about hopping around the corner and getting some sponsorship money. These two people are extraordinary. I really hope we can get James Ogilvy. I haven't heard from him yet, but I'll keep you updated on that one. So, Bell Martin... um, Hold on a minute, I'll just get back in my seat. That's better. Lady who cycled around the North Coast 500 in Scotland, which is an area that Sharon and I know fairly well after we took a slight detour from Gretna Green, which to a certain age group will mean a lot, to another age group won't mean anything. Unfortunately, it looks like for this episode at least James hasn't been able to make it, which is a terrible shame, but um, you never know, we might get him on uh, another episode. Oh, wait a minute, Um, that could be him now, Hold hold on a second. Hello. Hello, James. You can do it. Oh, that's absolutely brilliant. Okay, I'll set everything up. Thanks very much. Speak to you soon. Bye. Well, as you've just heard, James Ogilvy can do it, which is magnificent news. Um, So we'll be talking to James Ogilvy, climber of the Seven Summits for Tree Aid at a later point in this podcast. Well, let's, without further ado, let's hear Tree Aid describe who they are and what they do. TreeAid helps people in the dry lands of Africa to lift themselves out of poverty and protect their environment through the power of trees. In 2018-19, we had another record-breaking year. With your support, we helped almost half a million people, planted and regenerated almost 2.2 million trees, supported communities to sustainably manage almost 60,000 new hectares of forest and parkland, and nearly doubled household income through tree enterprises. Protecting and restoring natural resources is essential to slowing down the effects of climate change and stopping land degradation. In Ghana, we continued our work in partnership with Ecosia to restore and protect the Dakar River, which is drying up for a longer period each year. We worked with communities to grow 1 million trees along the river and trained 625 lead farmers on tree planting, farmer-managed natural regeneration and bushfire management skills. Our forest governance approach ensures that new trees thrive and forests are managed by the communities that depend upon them. Since 2007, TreeAid has worked in Burkina Faso to support communities to have greater voice, access and control over local forests. As a result, 52 groups are now sustainably managing over 32,000 hectares of forest. Trees provide fruit and nuts that can be processed into products like shea butter and be sold to generate an income. Last year, across all our projects, we supported 565 enterprise groups by providing them with the tools, training and support they need. To date, these groups have generated an estimated £1.3 million in total revenue from selling their products. In the communities where we work, Hunger and malnutrition are a daily threat. Trees provide a climate resilient source of nutritious food in the drylands of Africa. In 2018 to 19, we planted 102 nutrition gardens in Burkina Faso, which are now providing nutritious food such as baobab to 14,500 households. None of this would have been possible without the generous support of individuals, trusts, corporates, and institutions. Thank you for believing the work we are doing. Thank you for all your support you are giving us. Thank you for your support. You're listening to Tree Lady Talks. This is Sharon Durden-Hollenby. All music and production 
is by Noel Durden Hollenby. And all views expressed by me or the interviewees are entirely personal. Welcome to Shireen Chambers, MBE, Chair of Trustees of TreeAid. Tell us about the organisation. Well, it's a very exciting role to be Chair of TreeAid. It's, um, it, it's a wonderful organisation that's based in the UK and in the Sahel in Africa. So we have about 70 staff split about half and half between the African countries that we work in and, uh, and in Bristol, where our base is, where we do a lot of the um, fundraising work. TRIAD was set up um, over 30 years ago as a response to Band-Aid. And I have no idea if your listeners are going to have any idea what Band-Aid is. Oh, my goodness. I, I, it makes me feel so old because it sounds like <laughs> yesterday and it was such a powerful movement, wasn't it? It got so many people knowledgeable and excited about how they could help Africa. It was. And, and it was 1985. I know it because it, uh, it, it was a huge concert around the world, uh, rock concert, and it was set up uh, to really combat poverty following drought in Ethiopia and I think so many people were moved by it that they decided to do something more. And some foresters in Bristol decided that they would set up an organisation that could use trees to provide a, a lasting effect to the problems in Ethiopia and the whole of the Sahel. So providing famine relief is one thing that we all did in 1985. But Foresters, as you know, think long term and they, they thought that trees would be a solution. And so they set up Triad in 1987. So we've been going over 30 years. What is the overarching mission of the charity? What it's about is, is enabling people in the drylands of Africa to unlock the potential of trees to reduce poverty and to improve the environment. And what Triad sees that, that, that's really key is that reducing poverty and protecting the environment go hand in hand. Yep, that's right. And um, what has been the picture in the past? What are the challenges people face in the dry lands of Africa? Have trees been removed for fuel? Trees have absolutely been removed for fuel, for cooking, for, for building. The, uh, the goats, actually, which are very, very valuable to a lot of communities in, in Africa, let goats anywhere near a woodland and you know what happens to it, there's none left. But the main problem has been natural desertification. And when I say natural, that's not man-made locally. This is the climate crisis has really made this worse. Burkina Faso alone has 470,000 hectares of land degradation every year. That's a phenomenal amount. So basically the Sahara is just creeping south and this is getting worse. And what has become much more acute over the last decade is then communities cannot feed themselves. They look for a better life somewhere else. And this is triggering emigration um, to Europe and other countries. And it's also triggering an awful lot of conflict in these areas where we work. So the people that we work with don't just have to deal with desertification of their land and their crops failing but they also have to deal with conflict, which has got so much worse over the last decade in this area. It's, it's pretty tough. Some of these are, the, these are some of the toughest places on, in the world to live. And also breakdown of communities and breakdown of families as people sort of go to the urban areas and emigrate. And, and this desertification, is it really escalating exponentially or has it been a gradual process over the last couple of centuries? Um, I'm, I'm not actually sure, Sharon. I, I presume that the desert has been growing the, the, the way the rest of our habitats are, are increasingly becoming degraded. It has speeded up due to mankind over the last few decades, certainly this century. Because as we know, people lived in harmony with nature in Africa, as on every other continent for many centuries. And it's this century that we've done this damage. I mean, how do trees really grow in such a dry, sandy soil? Well, it's not, it's not dry all the time, of course. It rains a lot in some of these areas. But the trouble is that it, it's raining less or it's raining more ferociously or when it rains, the, the water simply runs off. The tree, trees are adapted. Trees, trees, trees grow everywhere, practically everywhere on the planet. But they certainly grow in the Sahel and they grow extremely well there. And, and what we're finding is that 
there, there are still uh, areas of scrub and bushland and forest, but it's not just that they're disappearing. It's a lot of the communities aren't confident that they can actually take produce from these. In other words, they don't know if they own them or can work with them. So trade works in a number of ways. It's not simply just planting trees. We try and influence policy. We, we develop forest management plans, but we work very much with the, the, the uh, government departments in the countries that we work to, to try and allow communities to manage their own forest governance so then they can do so with confidence. And as well as that, then we, we do the tree planting and, and regeneration and soil conservation. But we also work very much with enterprise development, so stepping up these communities so as they can get their own cooperatives together, be it shea butter or honey or whatever. And then we also provide food security and nutrition through nutrition gardens and planting trees as, as food. So it's in those four ways. It's not simply about halting desertification and education and training. It, it, it has to be on a, on a multitude of levels to try and work with communities. We've taken 1.8 million people out of poverty and grown 22 million trees over, over the last 30 years. And we want to expand that. I mean, tree is growing. So it, it's, it's a big task, but the task is getting bigger every year, even though we're growing and trying to address it. And you work in five countries, don't you, across the region? Yes, we, we work in, in Ghana, Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger, all, all in the Sahel in the west of Africa. And then we also work a bit on the east in Ethiopia. Ethiopia may seem like a richer country, but it's actually not. There, there are real areas of poverty still within it. As with, with Ghana, some of Ghana is, is pretty wealthy, but some in the north is, is pretty poor as well. And most of the ones on the West and in Ethiopia, they're all suffering from conflict as well. It's not, it's not an easy life at all for these people. No, I'm sure it isn't. And, and um, under conflict, it's obviously all about self-preservation and preservation of your community. And it must be hard to get those messages across of, of having a longer term view by retaining forest, managing the forest and planting trees. But um, clearly you're successful at doing that. When you plant new trees, say, next to an existing forest, have you observed over the 30 years how that ecosystem is going back to what it should be? What our staff do in, in Burkina in particular, where I visited more, they're uh, taking ground level studies of what we're doing when we get there and, and they're looking at monitoring those. So we do have a fair bit of data and we work in partnership with with others we're working on a really interesting project with edinburgh university actually at the moment on satellite imagery and and, and collecting the data so we work in part we work in partnership with a, with a lot of um great organizations be they international ngos or uk agencies or even um african agencies to try and see what's there now and then try and measure what we're doing. I mean, it, it's all about being able to provide evidence, to, to be able to, to get funding, you provide evidence. And using that evidence, has it influenced the species that you're planting or are you mirroring what's there already? Uh, there, there has been trials with, with different species in the past, but there's an awful lot of knowledge there already. So they know what needs done. And and one of the things that we're learning from them is, is where we're... We listen. That's the one thing we do is we listen because these guys are the land managers. These are the ones who've been struggling to grow crops for years in very difficult circumstances. So we'll come in and help them with some things that may have worked elsewhere in different communities. For example, we would dig what they, what they call demi-lunes, little areas to patches where water can collect when water does come and provide them training and tools to be able to do that. And then vegetables or crops would be able to grow in that. But what, what they've taught us is that they can add to that by planting a tree on the edge of it and the tree survives as well, not just their crop. So, so it's, it's mutual, but, but a lot of these men and women have been farmers for generation after generation. They know the land, they know what, what works and they know what species work best as well. We, we also work, target very much working with women. Half of the women get married under the age of 18 and I think only 22% of the women generally overall that we work with in these communities are educated. But we find that if we can educate the girls um, and work with women, say on social enterprises like Shea Butter Cooperatives, 
then they are the ones who can who can actually dominate the purse strings for their children's food budgets. What came to me best when I was last in Burkina Faso, when I asked one of the women I was working with in a Shia Butter Cooperative how Tree had actually helped her. And she said very simply, my children can now go to school instead of collecting water every day. And it's that simple. It's not simply about providing a tree providing shade or crops or stabilizing the soil or providing fruit it, it's simply about what that means to her economically that she can now afford to buy school books for her children and she knows if the children are being educated instead of walking for water every day that they'll have a better life it's that simple it's just so so wonderful to hear and there's some great films available on the youtube channel for tree aid and also some great images of people being helped and working together in this way on the tree aid website which we're going to have links to on the podcast what has been surprisingly effective in your work what's really sort of taken you back as a charity the the, the one thing that i think took us a little bit by surprise is what we call nutrition gardens so we're planting trees uh, with edible leaves. Now that, that I mean, it sounds, maybe as a forester, I was very naive when I first went out there thinking that the trees would be doing all the things we expect trees to do, mainly stabilising the soil, of course. Uh, so, you're, so you're preventing erosion. But I, I didn't actually for one minute think that communities actually ate the leaves of trees. And they do. They turn them into very nutritious food, particularly in the dry season, when these trees actually provide green leaves, which there's very little else doing in the dry season. So these gardens are, we grow trees just like crops and, and we provide the tools and the training for them to do them all themselves. Um, mainly moringa and baobab species. And they actually pick the leaves. I thought initially that they were feeding them to their to their stock, their goats and cattle, but they're not. They're, they boil them up into sauces and make really interesting food for themselves with it. So that has been extremely successful to, to the point that they just are, are planting bigger ones and more of them than we ever thought they would. And that's been rolled out in Burkina, Ghana, Niger. And the, so the, the tree leaves are cropped about every three months. And then after four or five years, those trees can be planted out somewhere to be a proper tree and then it seed itself and, and, and do all the other things that trees will do in Africa. But, but in the meantime, it, it's a food crop, which astonished me. I didn't know that either. That's wonderful. That's really wonderful. And I guess the other thing that's been really successful, that more so than we thought even, was we, we have targets for social enterprises for, for example, shea butter or honey. And again, these are all run by women. And our target is perhaps to double the income that they have before. And we do this by helping them form a cooperative. So they're not doing it individually and also getting rid of a a middleman at market, the women then go themselves into the market and sell it. And they love that, of course, they get a much better price and really good quality and they're very proud of their product. But actually, sometimes we find the evidence is now showing that we're not only doubling the income, sometimes it's five to ten times the income. So that's been extremely successful. And all of that boost of income, as you say, leads to education for the next generation, boosts their self-esteem, and it's very empowering, isn't it, to have your yeah, own money. Helping, so helping people help themselves. Yeah, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Well, I've heard about the Great Green Wall. That sounds just like the right type of wall. Tell us all about it. It's amazing. The Great Green Wall really is amazing. So it's um, it's a fantastically ambitious project to create eight thousand kilometers of greenness I suppose from Senegal to Djibouti right across Africa and it's really uh, proud to be working with the U- it's UNCCD so it's the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification but more importantly it's all coordinated by the African Union so, so this is a big ambitious project being delivered in Africa by Africans and I think that's what's key so, of course, there's international NGOs uh, working to help do it as well, help achieve it, as, as is uh, Triad working with it. The most wonderful thing, though, is a film that was made, and unfortunately, its release has been delayed due to COVID, but I really hope this it will come out soon, if not before the end of the year, by next year. And it's simply called The Great Green Wall. 
And I've, I had a, a preview of it since Creed was involved uh, with it and supported it. And it's not at all what I thought it was. I really, really would urge people to, to watch it when they, when they get hold of it. It's, uh, I suppose, a documentary by a Burkina musician, this wonderful woman called Ina Moja. She's delightful. She sings and plays and she talks her way right across Africa, speaking to other musicians and talking all about the Great Green Wall. But some of it's pretty hard hitting. So she talks to communities uh, of young men who are trying to migrate because of it and the difficulties they're having. She talks to victims of Boko Haram. She, she talks to a lot of people. It's very, very interesting. She herself has had the usual uh, female genitalia mutilation and uh, talks quite candidly about that. But despite that, it's a very upbeat film. And I think it sets out exactly what the issues are and why the Great Green Wall is needed. But but essentially, it's 8,000 kilometres of, of green greenness, mainly trees. Sometimes it will be quite wide and sometimes it will be quite narrow, right across Africa. And it will help the whole of humanity, not just Africans, by storing carbon. Gosh, that's incredible. And I think you've started, haven't you? And it's, it's about 15% done, is that right? Yeah, it, it's slower. It's slower than I think a lot of people would like, but um, it's, uh, it is a big, ambitious project. But I think it has to happen. When, when you see the rate of desertification in these countries, something has got to happen to stop it. And it can be done. You know, mass tree planting projects have taken place around the world, most notably in countries like China. It can happen. Are there any barriers to that, such as land ownership or lack of political will? Or is it such a widely understood concept that you don't have any issues like that? Oh, there's always issues. I think funding is an issue. Land ownership is an issue. Governance, um, knowledge. Um, conflict is a big issue. Um, just, just, just the things that are causing the problems in, in this part of Africa are also causing a problem with trying to get the Great Green Wall done. But the political will is there with the African countries that are involved. And every country that trade works in is involved in the Great Green Wall. And the United Nations um, is, is right behind it as well. It will happen. Uh, a lot of your work is in collaboration with other bodies. For example, Edinburgh University is involved. Have there been any particular findings from those studies that have been released or anything that could be widely disseminated to the academic community that might influence other projects, perhaps in other places in the world? Yes, I mean, our, our team in, in the African countries, our, our staff over there, regular give, regularly give talks to conferences in, in other African countries and in global countries. In fact, our operations director, George, came across to Oxford last year to talk at the Institute of Chartered Foresters Conference. So we, we, we're very much into knowledge exchange and we're very much into looking at the evidence that, that we've gathered through our work and how we can share that with others. An awful lot of international NGOs work together as well. We very much believe in partnership work. There is no way that we can do what we're doing without it. So we, we clearly don't want to duplicate work that someone else is doing. But one of the, tree, one of the real successes of TRIAD is our approach to working with the communities. And over 30 years, we find that this is the best way to work. You know, you, you don't come in and spend money on these again. It, it really is working with communities, how helping them to do what they already do, but do it better. And, and then doing bits that they find very difficult to do, such as, uh, you know, communicating with the local government to try and, and work out forest government plans, management plans for areas that they live in that they feel they don't have any authority over that they can actually do something with it so it's areas like that where, where we can really help that's absolutely wonderful and how can people listening get involved how can they donate to tree aid simply go to treeaid.org a lot of our uh, staff in the uk are there busy fundraising from the general public people who are listening or from corporate donors we, we work a lot with companies both in the uk and and globally uh, we very much want to hear from corporate donors, but but anyone, we want to hear from other people. And you can help in all sorts of ways. You can really see where a small amount of money will go on the website. There's all sorts of things you can do to actually help. We plant a tree every 30 seconds and we need 
We, we need your money to help do that. But, but what it's not just about money. You can follow the stories. You can become a supporter of trade and, and you can follow individual, particularly women, who, who I, I just find so inspiring when, I, when I'm out there. You, you never go and visit these people where, whereby they don't have a huge smile on their face. I love that. And have you got any other aspirations for the future as a charity? Or is it a question of just keep working more with other NGOs and delivering the Great Green Wall? Is there something else that you have in the pipeline? I probably need to raise our game a little bit in policy influencing. We're very, very good at getting getting work done on the ground. And I think we're recognised for that. And we've had some international uh, NGOs fund us for many years because they realise that we've got a good record on that. I think we, we need to, we do some of it, but I think we need to now start doing, trying to influence more, trying to get the, the governments in the countries that we work to see how the environment is so closely linked to the difficulties of their conflict, of their poverty. It, it's trying to link those two and show this, just show evidence of how if you protect the environment, you can help solve some of the other problems that you have. I want to finally, Shireen, what is your dream scenario? Oh, my dream scenario is that the rains come regularly in this part of the Sahel where the communities can grow their crops, the children can go to school and they don't feel that moving to Europe is something that they have to do to survive because many of them don't even survive trying to get there. Thank you so much. What an absolutely inspiring and fascinating charity, one that I've always been right behind. And I hope that listeners will have a look at the Tree Aid website and you can buy really great gifts for people for Christmas, for weddings and birthdays and um, be part of a global community to make things better. Thank you so much, Shireen. Thank you very much. And thank all your listeners for, for joining in for this. And as we all know, trees mean life. You're listening to Tree Lady Talks, talking to... I'm uh, George Bazongo. I'm um, Director of uh, Operation for Tree Aid, based in Burkina Faso, Ouagadougou. And uh, I'm an agronomist and environmentalist. Uh, I have uh, 22 years experience working in rural area in uh, Burkina and uh, other countries in West Africa and East Africa as well when I was working previously. So my work are coming from the grass level to the level of data where I am today. That's always the best way, isn't it? To know what it's like just from the grass level. So it really helps you with the job you're doing now. And what is the main role that you carry out? Are you focused on the Great Green Wall or on all of the projects? Yes, I'm focused on... Uh, all the project, my role is to ensure that all the projects we are developing and we are implementing in the field are feeling to the green wall uh, initiative objectives, as well as for the others, you have uh, UNCCD, UN uh, Conference to Combat Desertifications, for, for which a green wall initiative also is feeling. And, uh, we are partnering also with uh, development partnership with uh, government uh, agents, uh, government uh, people, and uh, civil society organization here, so that we are able to reach the targets of the communities and then the objective of a green, green world initiative. The main targets are the rural communities for whom we are working in uh, our organization. How is the Great Green Wall progressing? Ah, okay. I can say that the Great Green Wall initiative, it's a good initiative, a good uh, program uh, for us, for the dry lands of uh, Africa. But uh, unfortunately, if we take the past 10 years, the progress was really uh, low. So according to the report released, uh, I think, last month for the Green World Initiative. But for, for us, what our work are really progressing in, uh, in the last uh, five years, I can say even the last 10 years, we really planted a lot of trees and we have around 22 million trees. But not only this, we are also developing some uh, 
uh, enterprise work for the rural community so that they can make more money, have green jobs, and uh, also to restore some uh, land uh, across all the countries we are working with. We think that, yes, we had some um, um, challenges to face to, to raise some money and some resources to develop projects and to implement in the field. But we think that uh, the future will be better if all the parties, all the organizations, the corporate, the UN organization, the African Union, the government, they really uh, desire to make to, to to put more money to achieve the objective of Green Green World Initiative, and we trust on this, and I think that we will achieve it. That's excellent. Working together is so important in whatever we do. Yeah. And I really get a strong sense that not only are you changing the landscape, but you're really changing people's lives and improving their economic well-being and their social well-being. Is that correct? Yes. As a tree aid, what we, in our objectives, we have to... Um, support community to make more money. Why money? Because people need to buy food. Because sometimes, you know, in climate change impact, there is a soil de land degradation. So the food uh, production also uh, decreased. So the people will need to buy more money, eh, more food, especially in the lean season, uh, where it's really difficult. And also we need to, for education, we need to go to hospital, we need to build houses, we need to, you know, for family affairs. So our work uh, will support this community, helping communities really to make more money, to access to food, very rich in terms of vitamin, in terms of uh, micronutrients for the for human body. So. We are working to improve the community's livelihood uh, in uh, in our countries of operation, which are Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger, Ghana, and uh, Ethiopia. So wonderful to hear about the better nutrition and the better education. It has such an upward spiral. That's fantastic. And what are the barriers and the problems that you have in achieving this ambitious project? apart from money yes yeah the barrier is um sometimes you know you there are we are still working in a hard environment conditions which we are facing some climate shock and stresses uh which sometimes you can invest plant trees uh, restore land but if you have a regular you know climate crisis uh which make the community really worse because they cannot get more money they have to flee the houses to go in town or in other countries to make more money. So it's really some challenges we are facing in the villages and where we are uh, working. So what also we are as big challenges is, uh, but not for us, but sometimes we see that there is uh, some weak collaboration between uh, partners. So that is something and we are happy to see that in the green world uh, objectives and the land degradation partnership we need to work together to face climate change impact for these communities it really sounds like a race against time because i understand that the region is one of the fastest affected by climate change and yet the tree planting will help improve the environment will it reverse some of the desertification Yes, uh, you know, currently, honestly, we can say that the investments, all our work we are doing and all the partners is uh, below the, the target and to have also the balance between land degradation and land restoration, forest degradation, forest restorations, and food and nutrition insecurity and improving uh, food and nutrition security for these communities. Why? Uh, so we are really beyond this target. 
but we can believe and we can hope that uh, with having some uh, vision, like create, we are thinking about uh, some many years, how we can, what investment even countries need, you know, to balance between the degradation and the restoration and to improve the uh, community's uh, livelihood. So we are planting trees and trees really help to improve soil fertility, to infiltrate the water in the soil to make it available for the crop productions and also to improve the, the human being because you have the shadow where people can rest and we have also, it's a kind of sink of carbon. So that's a very, very important. And so some of looking at trees only for the fruit, but we, we are lo looking at trees more than this. And also our work we are doing is not only planting trees, it's also to supporting communities to develop some enterprises and then to make some green jobs and then they will not move again, we stay and the communities will be uh, uh, well for at this time. Yeah. And presumably it's being taught in schools. Are the young people excited and understand how beneficial planting trees is beyond having something to eat, but the long-term benefits? Yes, because our target, we have uh, children, people at school, we have uh, young people, and then we, have, we are working also, most of our beneficiaries are women. Why? Because they have a part of the communities who are uh, really harvesting uh, the forest products for marketing, for processing, and uh, for the families to eat. So if we target them, they can uh, harvest in a sustainable uh, manner. That's very important. For the young people, we, have, we involve them to be part of our activities because we think that investing in young people and in women, we invest for the future. Why? Because they have the, uh, what for women is clear, for young people, they will be the adults of uh, the, the future. So uh, raising awareness of these people uh, about the environment, about the lung degradation and the need of restoration, and also the, the cause, you know, of the land degradation. So it will help them while they are starting to produce the food to take care of uh, not destroying all the environment, but for the natural, sustainable uh, natural resources uh, management. So that's what we are doing. And some of our uh, targets are schools uh, in our projects in Mali, in Burkina as well. And also we are partnering them and for environmental uh, education, which is very important for this uh, target in the communities. Have you noticed a real increase in people's excitement when they start planting trees? Has it become a real movement in Burkina Faso and in Niger? Yes, I can say that there is a people now they trust because uh, by planting trees, by seeing the benefits of the trees, they're really exciting to be part of uh, this uh, movement. And hopefully all the government also they trying they started to invest more time more resources human and uh, uh, money uh, in the, the tree planting and uh, restorations in uh, our countries they are also developing and improving the policies and practices to make it more effective so we think that this and also we are seeing a lot of organizations like civil society organizations international organizations uh, like Tree Aid uh, and others to be part of this movement by investing in, uh, in this. We are not building, but not taking account of the environment. Now, this is a win-win to look at. This is very important to, to check. And also, we, we have to say that we are, there is a big partnership which has coming on for to face this challenge because what I said the challenge is that 
the land degradation is growing fast, while the land restoration is really, uh, can say, uh, uh, low. So we need to move fast to be able to meet. While at the same time, while moving fast, we need to uh, sensitize and create awareness for population to reduce the land degradation. We cannot stop, but we can reduce so that we can meet and have this uh, balance. So this means that in country also, uh, government also are really engaged and committed to, to this work. That's very good to hear that the government's committed and you're working with other organisations, but you need money, don't you? And as any charity does, and one of the purposes of this podcast is not only to highlight the excellent work that you're doing, but to raise awareness and the Tree Aid website provides some excellent and easy ways to donate. And I'm sure many of our listeners are already donating. Finally, Georges, what do you really wish for? If you could wave a magic wand, what is your great wish? My great wish will be in the next 10 years to see more land covers by the biomass. If we have this, we have several benefits. Sink of carbon, reduction of carbon emissions, the weather will be good, will be better will be improving soil fertility, people will grow more food, people will more access, will access to more forest products for marketing, so creating green jobs, and then also the life will be better for these rural communities for which we are really committed and working with. Absolutely, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. It's lovely to meet you. Thank you, Sharon. Welcome to Belle Martin. Thank you so much for joining us. Belle, we've invited you to speak today because you've just recently carried out the most incredible fundraising. But before we talk about that, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. I'm a forestry nursery manager, so I work at Christine Nurseries. And um, we look, up to, look after about 18 million trees and around about 10 million saleable trees every year. So we um, supply to forest industries. So we are the starting block of your forest and woodland. What inspired you to fundraise for Tree Aid in the first place? I found it was um, something I could totally not relate to as it was um, regarding tree nurseries herself over in Africa. And as you know, I'm I'm a tree and work a tree nursery here, so it felt like it was the perfect thing, perfect kind of charity that would fit into what I believe in. That and I find that charities that help and support and aid people out of poverty is always the best. How did you raise the money? I raised the money through a Just Giving page, and um, and I bombarded my social media massively to get um, people, especially from the forest industry and other friends and family, to support. Let's not keep people in suspense any longer. What did you actually do? Well, I went around the North Coast 500. I did 516 miles on my bike and I camped every night and I had to all my stuff there and all the stuff um, back. So I was completely on my own and self-sufficient. Good heavens. That's incredible. For those who are listening who don't know the 500, it's around the Scottish coast, isn't it? And it's becoming really, really well known. Yes, it's um, the north of Scotland, so it's the whole of the um, Highlands. And it starts off um, Inverness and finishes at Inverness. And it goes all the way up to the Durness, to John O'Groats, and then all the way back down. And it's classed as um, one, of the, one of the best scenic routes to do. And it's in like, the same kind of um, genre as um, Route 66. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant. I mean, it's it's an area that Noel and I know quite well because after we got married in Gretna Green last year, we went to stay in the Scarry Hotel, which our friends own, just near Durness. And we've been there many, many times. And we've really noticed that it's a real sort of event now to do the 500 in all sorts of different vehicles. But to cycle it, how long did it take you? It took me um, eight days to do. So I did it actually... I did it really nice. I, most people have been, um, most people do that you do it in six days, but I wanted to actually see the scenery as well. And in this case, I had a puncture as well, so I, I gave myself eight days. Eight days? I thought you were going to say eight weeks. <laughs> 
But I mean, it's not all flat and the weather isn't always calm. Tell us about some of the challenges you had on the way. I think, um, I must admit, I wasn't, at the start, I wasn't really prepared for what it was I was going into because I was, when I was training all through the summer, I just had beautiful weather and the days that I went out were lovely. And then as soon as I went for my first day from Inverness to Loch Allen, um, <laughs> yeah, the rain just came with me and Yes, I don't think I saw much of the West Coast at all because it was all like rain and wind and um, mist. But I can say I certainly know when I what's the difference between West Coast weather and East Coast weather, that's for sure. So what kept you going through that difficult time? On your, you're on your own, you're on your bike, the wind's against you, your face is splattered with rain. How did you keep going? I think it's because I was doing it for charity that I didn't, I couldn't have an excuse to... It was more mental going with like if it wasn't for charity, I think I probably would have come home actually. But it's the fact is that I was doing it for a cause and um do you know, once it once it got to like the third day it just became like a routine. And um I wasn't by that time the weather didn't phase me, um it was just it's actually probably the, the pure satisfaction from getting from one bit to the other and knowing that you did it yourself and you pedaled all that way. Well for those who are into cycling, what type of bike do you have? Actually, this is the most funniest part. I did it in my boyfriend's mother's hybrid bike that I borrowed. There was nothing special about it. It was nothing, like, it wasn't top of the range or anything like that. It was just a normal hybrid bike. And what were the highlights of the journey? I was getting to John O'Groats, actually, and going that I got to the top. <laughs> I was like, wow. Actually, I think it was every day when you had to do, like, in the West Coast, when you had to go with the climbs. I think it was like the full satisfaction of getting to the top and then just letting, picking my feet up and then just going downhill for miles and miles. That was amazing. One of the other highlights was the fact that the people that I met around in my little trip because it was those people that I never even met and they ended up um, putting donating £20, £100 into the Just Giving page as I was going around and who I was missing. And I'd also like to say thank you to the, the many people that shoved chocolate out their doors their car and gave it to me. That was amazing. What did you learn about yourself during that journey? Well, I'm a little tough cookie, but I want to be. <laughs> and I quite that. And, um, and also, I can, I'm extremely organized now. I can, let's just say, I can pack up four panniers and pack up a one-man tent on the rain in literally 40 minutes and get on my bike and on the road. But it used to take me like an hour and a half or something to get ready for work. <laughs> Any ideas of another fundraising event you might do in the future? I would certainly would do, um, I would start to go and do something like that again. Maybe not the North Coast 500, or maybe I should weather watch the next time. That would be better. Yeah. <laughs> and pick a better week off work. I certainly definitely would do something similar or, or going and going on a tour that way. I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was such an amazing experience. So if people want to donate, where can they donate? Tell us how they can give some money to TreeAid through your fundraising activity. My Just Giving page is still active. So you can um, either find me on Twitter, which is at Belle Martin, or you can uh, go onto the Just Giving and you can just put in Bell's North Coast 500 and you'll see my page and you can donate through there. That's Bell's North Coast 500 on Just Giving. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time, Belle. That's an incredible journey. Thank you. Oops, look out. There she goes now. There's our Belle. Welcome to... James Ogilvy. It's so lovely to have you on the podcast. I mean, we know each other as well, so it's always a pleasure to see you. James, you've had such an interesting career. Could you just outline the highlights, please? I suppose it all, it all started for me in, in a long time ago, actually in 1970, and I was still at school. And the Forestry Commission was, had opened its, its Northern Research Station um, just outside of Edinburgh. And um, I went along in my school uniform to see what all the fuss was all about and decided that forestry really was what I wanted to, uh, to, to, to be involved in. So... Um, I went to Oxford and I studied agriculture and forest science at a time when you could do that. You can't do it anymore. And then, um, and then after that, I was lucky enough to join the commission. And 
you know, my kids think I'm a dinosaur because 38 years later, uh, I retired. And the, these days, it's very unusual to work for one organization for, you know, your whole career. But it doesn't feel like it, Sharon, because I've done all sorts of things in that time. And I've, I've worked in, in uh, spent time in Africa working there. And I've worked in England and Scotland and done all sorts of different jobs. And it's just been an absolute blast. I, I wouldn't have changed a thing. Well, not only have you carried out different roles within the Forestry Commission, but the Commission itself has changed so much. I and mean, there's such a great emphasis on biodiversity and social engagement as well. So I can easily see how a long career working for the Forestry Commission must have felt like several. Yeah, it has. And I mean, I've, I've been fortunate to to do all of the three aspects of sustainable forest management. So the 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 economic and the environmental and then my last few years was as head of social policy which in some ways was the most interesting because it's about where people meet forestry and in a sense that's what forestry is all about at the end of the day and the people side I think is is the one that government should be devoting a, a, a lot more of its attention to um, it's still very much the sort of various parts of what were the forestry commission are still quite um, hung up on the economic side because that's why the commission was formed in the first place. My strong view is that, that trees, woods, for, for the benefit of people and communities and society is, is really what government should be doing and then they should be leaving the kind of more commercial aspects to the private sector who do it very well, frankly. It's so linked together, isn't it? Um, and tell us about your, your personal interests. Like I say, you know, I've always had an interest in in, in trees and woods. I don't know why, because there hasn't been a kind of family connection at all. But I think it's something to do with being taken, you know, for walks in the woods as a kid. We we were taken into the forests of East Anglia. We lived in Peterborough. I, I grew up sort of in Peterborough, and then we moved to Scotland. And we were fortunate to have a a place with with a, a big kind of garden. But I roamed around the countryside, getting up to all sorts of mischief and shooting rabbits with my air rifle and, and kind of loving loving that kind of a lifestyle so so that's why I went into forestry and of course the trouble is that as you as you progress in your career you end up working in an air-conditioned office typing on a computer yeah I know so tell us about what you do in your spare time I, I do a lot of things in my spare time I mean one of them actually which is key for me is is I'm very fortunate to to Art owners, a small woodland in Northumberland, and I spend lots of time there. You know, walking the talk and, and planting and thinning and pruning and all, all. You know, you know, doing a lot of lot of work there. And then, as you say, my other uh, sort of big interest has been hills and mountains and climbing. And I've been very lucky to to climb all the Monroes in Scotland. Those are two hundred and eighty two mountains above um, three thousand feet, which is new money. That's nine hundred and fourteen uh, meters. And then, again, it kind of happened by accident, which sounds a bit strange, but my, the last <clears throat> several years have been devoted to, to the climbing the seven summits. Yes, that's seven summits in seven continents. Let's not be modest about this, James. And you've written the most entertaining book, Getting High, The World at Your Feet, which is available everywhere. You'd want to see it. And uh, this is no mean feat, is it? Tell us about uh, some of the most beautiful and the most hair-raising moments. Goodness, well, I mean, I could spend hours talking about it. I, 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 I can give a one-hour presentation on, on Everest alone. I, I have to make a little disclaimer because although the book's called Getting High, if I ever give a talk to school schools, and I give quite a lot of talks, I have to tell my audience that it's nothing to do with illicit substances <laughs> and everything to do with altitude. It's about the seven summits. It's about the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. So that includes Antarctica, of course, North America, South America, Asia, Europe, uh, Australia. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I started off by climbing Kilimanjaro. I had a week off work, a friend in Nairobi, and this kind of serendipitous series of events where I turned up at the foot of the mountain and managed to find a group who were climbing the next day because most people book climb up Kilimanjaro weeks or months in advance. So I was I just kind of landed up there and and set off. It was just, just as well because I didn't have time. You know, if I'd left it another day, I wouldn't have had time to climb it. And then and then it was Aconcagua in South America after that. And pretty soon it was like, well, you know, I'm halfway around the seven summits. At some stage I'm going to have to climb Everest, uh, which is a very serious undertaking. So 
I'm really, really fortunate, Sharon, because uh, I've, I've climbed each one of these seven summits at the first go. And I only know of one other person who's done that. And the other thing I've been doing sort of in parallel is training has been climbing the Monroes. And I finished my Monroes about four or five years ago and kind of did a bit of research and, and thought, am I the first person to climb all the Monroes and the Seven Summits? Oh. And I realised, no, I wasn't actually. The first person to have done it was a, a Scots woman. So, so there you are. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's really good. And the reason why we're talking to you, as well as being really interesting, is because you've had a, a lifelong interest in tree aid and you've raised a lot of money. So tell us all about your involvement with TreeAid. That's right. Well, TreeAid was, was, you know, it's been my charity of choice for a very long time. And I can remember when it was formed because it was about the same at the time as uh, the, the whole Bob Geldof, uh, Band-Aid, Live-Aid, all of that. And uh, somebody who, who I knew in the Forest Commission, a guy called John Fletcher, he, he died a few years ago, but he, he was one of the founders. I knew John through the Forestry Commission and climbing mountains is a quite a selfish thing, Sharon. You know, it's 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 quite an ego driven thing and it's it's difficult for the people you leave behind behind. You're worrying about you, your family and friends. And so it's partly to sort of assuage that conscious, that sort of selfishness that um, I decided I wanted to raise money for tree aid. So every climb that I've done, I've 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 done that and I'm um, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that I have raised a, a fair bit of money for for TreeAid over the years, and and I, I know TreeAid because I well I went to Ethiopia um, earlier this year actually um, to see some of their work at first hand, and um, so so I know that the money that's given to them goes straight to where it's needed and does terrific benefit on the ground and, and empowers villages and communities uh, through through what trees and woods have to offer. So, James, apart from the magnificent fundraising, tell us about your role within TreeAid. Well, uh, my role now is as a business ambassador. And so uh, I'm there really on hand to help where I can. I have been involved in, in quite a lot of the seminars and I've given presentations in the past. My hope is that, uh, you know, I can continue to be an ambassador for TreeAid and, and basically tell people about the great work that they're doing. So you went to Ethiopia earlier this year. What really impressed you about the work of TreeAid? Well, just, just to stress, part of the reason I went to Ethiopia was that um, I uh, was on a safari in Kenya um, with some Kenyans uh, uh, who I know. We actually went very close to the, to the Ethiopian border up at uh, Lake, Lake Rudolph. So I, I paid for my own way to get to Ethiopia. And what really impressed me was the the energy and enthusiasm and commitment of the local communities to to trees and we had many meetings with local sort of councils where you would sit down it's all quite formal you'd sit on a low seat under a tree and you'd talk about the things that they were doing then you'd go and see it firsthand a lot of it was being done by the women and it you know tree aid wasn't just about planting trees it was about helping them to make products from trees and things like that and also building materials as well for storing and that kind of thing and some of the testimonials that you you heard obviously through a translator from local people at first hand were, were very moving and it was a you know tree is one of those charities that people give to in this country and they very rarely have a chance to see at first hand what's going on so it's a great privilege for me to to be in that position and get real insights as to the benefits that that TreeAid was doing in, in in Ethiopia and in other places too. I'm very fortunate to still be keeping very much involved in in trees and woods because in my retirement I'm doing a lot of work for some charities. So I'm a non-exec director of the Woodland Trust and the Borders Forest Trust, and I'm I'm involved in an estate up in the Highlands called Karaa, which is uh, into rewilding, which is very exciting. And the, the stars have never been as well aligned as they are at the moment towards trees and woods. And although they're not the total solution to climate change, they are a huge part of the solution in terms of, you know, um, God's uh, carbon capture and storage devices. And, and you know, we, we need to be planting a lot more. I think politicians have woken up to this. It's mainstream now. I absolutely agree with you. It's never been more important. And I think things are going to escalate quite quickly because I, I hear many people say um, that the pandemic, obviously, it's a terrible time for everybody. But 
what's coming in climate change, if we don't make the right choices now and act now, it's going to be far worse. It's going to affect where people live, how people can eat, absolutely every single facet of of life. And we do have the power to make those changes now. And it's so good to see so many organisations coming together, including TreeAid, to combat that with the Great Green Wall, for example. And finally, James, what is your dream scenario for the future? You're looking at back at your long career. You've got loads more work to do with your voluntary roles and your non-executive director roles. Tell us, what is your dream scenario? I think my, my dream scenario is less of a personal one and more of a, a scenario for, for the planet. Because as David Attenborough said, we're the first generation to really wake up to what climate change is, is doing and possibly the last one to be able to fix it before tipping points, even if we haven't already reached that. And to me, the dream scenario is one where we, we do have a woodland culture where people really respect and appreciate and, and are, you know, kind of devoted to, to, to the whole thing around trees and woodlands. And that means very much the urban context. And I think uh, it's tragic that, you know, the, the majority of the world's population now live in the urban areas. It's tragic to me that we're still seeing developments that don't respect trees and woods. I mean, we all re- depend on on the environment and, and what it, what it can produce for our survival. And it's easy to living in a in an urban environment to lose sight of that. But we lo- lose sight of that at our peril, and we're just stewards of the earth. We've got to find a new paradigm in terms of regarding the earth and her, and her resources as something to be exploited. We've got to change to one where we 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 believe it's about stewarding and about passing on to the next generation. Because if we don't do that, frankly, there's not a lot of hope for, for our species in the future. So, so that's my kind of dream. It's more of a dream for the planet and how the planet is treated than a, than a personal dream. Lots of people just need to be fed easy solutions that they can do now as well. And we in the arboricultural and forestry industry and all the land-based industries have a real responsibility to communicate that clearly. And I, you've done that so well. So thank you so much, James. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Absolute pleasure, Sharon. Thank you very much. Oh, that was interesting when Shireen mentioned Band-Aid. Oh, God, it takes me back. I was a waitress at the time. I couldn't wait to finish my shift at the tea room so that I could get home and watch it. What were you up to? Well, I was working in the music industry in 1985, and in fact, in fact, all of the 80s, uh, a decade that I simply didn't know anything about. <laughs> um, and, uh, we, yeah, we were working out of uh, the studio that eventually Stock Aitken and Waterman ended up buying. And uh, when Band-Aid was on, it was absolutely enormous. I mean, it was just extraordinary. It was great. And actually, it really sparked consciousness in people to help. And and so it's so great to see what TreeAid have done and are doing now with the Great Green Wall Project. I must say desertification is a word that I hadn't heard of before, but that's just me. I'm sure that's well known to a lot of people. Well, it's whether people know it or not, it's a big deal and it's happening now. And, and the Great Green Wall is going to really help reverse that trend. And, and so important to help people help themselves. And, and good to see how women are, are being helped, having their own economic stability and able to send children to school, because that's the future, isn't it? And very much like Bob Geldof was so passionate about raising money for Band-Aid, so all these people are as well. It's, it's the only way that they, they can actually generate enough money to create the projects that they're creating, and uh, good on them. Yep, it's a charity. It's a great website, and there are so many good ways to give. You can donate a single gift or regularly, or you can um, fund individual projects. And it's just some really good films on their website, which we're going to have a link to, aren't we, on our website. So what have we got planned in the future? Well, the next episode, which is coming out very soon, is going to be Trees and Literature and Art. And we're interviewing two fantastic authors and an artist with the oak tree as a main feature the sort of relationship you can build with a tree. You love an oak tree, don't you? I love an oak tree. Who doesn't? We're so pleased that the podcast is reaching so many people and all over the world. 
and it's given us the idea to have a tree manager special, a global one. And we've already um, secured Matt Wells from Santa Monica. We know there are listeners in Argentina, Indonesia, Brazil, Mexico, Australia, South Africa, all of the European countries. If you manage trees, if you like this podcast, get in touch with us. You can do that by Twitter at the tree lady 67 not my age or by emailing sharon at sharon associates.co.uk we're really friendly we've got a facebook page as well haven't we yeah tell us about that now facebook page is facebook.com forward slash sharon hosgood associates and where can people find these podcasts and how else can they get in touch with us? Yeah, the podcast is available all over the place. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Deezer, you name them, it just goes on and on and on. You can pretty much find us everywhere. Um, it's really good. And what we're trying to do is build a bit of a community here. And, and don't forget the Christmas party details to follow there is a Christmas party coming up I have no idea who's doing the catering I guess it will be you. <laughs> it might be me anyway in the meantime thank you very much for listening see you next time goodbye <laughs>